Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. It says, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to thee in prayer. We do thank you for the opportunity that is ours to gather ourselves as a body of believers together in thy house to focus our hearts and minds on you and thy word. I pray that our hearts and minds are yielded vessels in thy hand this morning, that we are ready for you to take your word and to draw it deep into our hearts to bring about change. That, Father, we as believers who are gathered here may be conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For that soul that may be here lost, Father, may your convicting spirit be at work drawing them unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in their place for their sins. We do ask that you would be at work. Father, we know that you will, and I pray that each of us will be yielded to your working, allowing you to change us from the inside out. May we go forth rejoicing that it's been good to have been in thy house. May we go forth in thy strength, declaring to a lost and dying world the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is their redemptive means of salvation. Do that work, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Joseph this morning, he's one of those characters I think we enjoy reading about. Um, Maybe sometimes we would wish that we were like him because we see, you know, really a sterling quality, a sterling character come out. But we see Joseph's faithful living. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul admonishing the Corinthian church says, So let a man account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Do we not, in our day and age, consider faithfulness a good quality? And I, and I say that broadly speaking, not just in our Christian realm. But, you know, overall, do people see faithfulness as being a good thing? Are you there at work every morning when you're supposed to be? 
Are you volunteering someplace and you're, you, they can be, you're counted on? Now, we tend to find that these are good things and people commend us for it. I, I think of various times in my own life that um, I've been in a, a volunteer capacity and uh, I'm there when it's time to have that activity. And I can remember many a time people just commenting, we appreciate that. We, we thank you for being faithful. You're always here. And I've always thought, well, I'm supposed to be here. I volunteered to do this. So I will be here unless something comes up and you'll be notified. To me, faithfulness, as we consider the scriptures, is what we are supposed to be doing. It's not, faithfulness is to be nothing exceptional in our eyes. It's what's expected of us. As Paul noted to the Corinthians, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, that a man be found faithful. A steward was someone who took care of others' goods. The steward is what Joseph is in Potiphar's house. We'll touch on some of that here in a moment, but that's what he was. You say, but he was a slave. Yes, he was a slave. But Potiphar's household's everything was in Joseph's hands. Potiphar didn't even know his bank account. He so trusted Joseph that Joseph was doing the right thing, that he wasn't an, he wasn't an embezzler. Although, given our text, could Joseph have embezzled money from Potiphar? Yes, because it says Potiphar didn't even know what he had. He never sat down with Potiphar with Joseph and said, okay, how'd the month go? Let's, let's see the bank records. He, he completely trusted Joseph. It's in your care. Go for it. Now, all that Joseph was dealing with, was it Joseph's? No. It was Potiphar's. That's the definition of a steward. Taking care of something that's not your own. We, as God's stewards, have the blessed gospel message to give. It's ours in that, yes, we've trusted Christ, but it's not our message, it's Christ's message. And he's left us here to be faithful and to serve him accordingly. But as we look at Joseph, we know the story, I trust. As a young man, he's hated by his brothers. Why? As, as we ended our text with verse 19, they said what? Behold, this dreamer cometh. They're referring back to the dreams that he told them about. Dreams that the brothers and the parents would bow down to Joseph. What a, what a statement. Obeisance to the next, to the youngest son in the family. Now, it doesn't help if we don't understand the basis of what's going on here, but there was a hierarchy within the family. The firstborn son was given certain rights that were expected of him. A double portion, as it was, of the inheritance. Because not only did he have to take care of himself, but he was also the one called upon to take care of the parents in their old age. He had the responsibility of being prior to the Jewish nation coming along, he was also the priest of the family. 
of the whole family. And uh, so for Reuben to have had these dreams would have been nothing unusual because Reuben was the firstborn and he would have the respect of the rest of the family by right of being the firstborn. But this is Joseph. He's number 11 out of 12. He's next to the youngest. And he dared to tell his older brothers, oh guys, I had a dream and you know, these things bowed down to mine. I can understand the older brothers. I, I am an older brother. I have two sisters. I don't have other younger brothers, but I would have been indignant if one of my sisters would have said something like that to me at some point in our being raised together in our home. <laughs> really? You think I'm going to bow down to you, little sister? Nothing doing. Not hardly. I'm the older brother. And as my sisters would say, yeah, you're the favorite son, too. They like you and all that. But that's what's taking place, and the brothers are having nothing to do with it. They were not figuring these dreams were coming from God. That's quite obvious when you look at that context. But notice Jacob, when he's brought into the mix, because the second dream, not only do the brothers' items bow down, but so do mom and dad. And Jacob hears about this. But it says, Jacob observed the saying. Well, the initial thought was probably incredulous. What? I'm the head of this clan and I'm going to bow down to you? Yet, as Jacob thought about it, he was giving God some ground. Jacob didn't dismiss it, didn't ridicule Joseph. I mean, you realize, yes, well, we've got to remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Yes. But he observed it. He noted it. He contemplated it. He was thinking about this. There may be something to this. Because... Who is Jacob in his generation? Is he the firstborn? No. But was he the one chosen? Yes. So he understands the working of God within that family context. That just because culture, society, has the firstborn being the ranking one, that God often has other plans. And so he observes that. He takes that in. But we see as it continues on, J Joseph's faithful living, we'll see these dreams become a reality. Now, yes, I know God's the one at work here. And I understand that. It's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We do have a responsibility before God. We're not a marionette 
that God takes the controls to and just moves us around like a puppet on a stage. God expects us to be faithful, to live for him. Yes, we have this godly prophecy through Joseph that something like this is going to happen, that the older are going to bow down in obeisance to Joseph. In the human scheme of things, they're thinking that's, there, there's no way in this world that's going to happen. There's no situation that we can think of that this is the right scenario. And so they hate him. They hate him to the point, as we see, they want to kill him. We'll take care of this dreamer. If he's dead, guess what? We can't bow down to him. But we see that that's not what happens. Sanity reigns. They sell him off into slavery. His blood's not on our hands. We're not the ones that actually killed him, but he'll die, surely die in slavery. And if he's off in slavery, we're not going to bow down to him. He's a slave now. We've washed our hands of this. But God is at work. Joseph's faithful living will see these dreams become a reality. A reality that will literally save the nation of Israel before it's really a nation yet. May we be found faithful as God unfolds his plan of the ages in our lives. Joseph is a faithful man through all that we have here. Turn over to chapter 39. It is a chapter that I, I love to read. Faithful living means recognizing the presence of God in your life. I've often had it read. I have somewhere in my stash of stuff um, a little track that says how to practice the presence of God. I don't like that word practice. How to acknowledge the presence of God. It's not something that we practice. It's something that we acknowledge. But faithful living means recognizing the presence of God in your life. As we come to chapter 39, verse 1 notes, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. Again, I trust we know the story. We're familiar with it. Joseph is taken by those Ishmaelites, taken out of the promised land, the land of Canaan. He's taken down to Egypt. He's put on the auction block. Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, sees this young man and buys him. I could use that. He's a nice, stout young man. He can work in my stuff. Is this a high point in the life of Joseph? Would we not consider this a rather low point? I mean, he's being sold. He's he's a piece of property, as it were. This is a low point. What does Moses write in verse 2? And the Lord was with 
Joseph. And he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he, all that he did to prosper in his hand. A low point in Joseph's life, as we look at it from a human standpoint, and it is recorded for us, the Lord is with Joseph. So we surmise from that, that is that this part of God's plan? I think we could surmise that this is part of God's plan for Joseph. The Lord's with him. If it's not part of God's plan for him, would God be with him? You say, well, God's with us all the time. Yes. But he's faithfully serving God even in this spot. And we see that, that what he has in his hands prospers. Potiphar takes note of this, that the Lord is with him. And that whatever Joseph is doing prospers. Oh, I'm kind of glad I got this guy. He's a benefit to me. But he's recognizing, we see that faithful living brings this about. Joseph is living for the Lord. Yes, even as a slave. The Lord is with him. And God blesses and uses him. He can use us in these unusual places. Chapter 39, drop down to verses 21 through 23. We'll touch the intervening passage here in a moment. <clears throat> but the results of what happens in between, with Potiphar's wife casting her eyes upon him and he refusing, he's tossed into prison under false charges. But verse 21 through 23, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Again, another low point, and we could say even lower, humanly speaking. I mean, it's one thing to be a slave, but now as a slave, he's falsely accused. And he's cast into prison under those false accusations. But he has no standing. I mean, he can tell Potiphar, I'm innocent of the charges but is Potiphar going to believe a slave or his wife? To keep the peace in the house, he's going to believe his wife. And this is just a slave anyway, as much as he did help me out. But I think we can understand the reasons why Potiphar would say, okay, yep, send him off to prison. But he sends him to prison, doesn't kill him. So now we find him even lower, if you will, because now he's a slave in prison. Does he have any rights in Egypt? No. And what do we find? The Lord's with him still. And the Lord prospers him even in the prison so that, again, the keeper of the prison says, you know what, Joseph, 
Take care of it. Both times, if you will, we find him second in command within the setting that we find him in. In Potiphar's house, he's the number two guy. Everything that Potiphar has except for his wife is in Joseph's hands. He goes to prison. Prison chief. There you go. Take care of it, Joseph. It's yours. Second in command, if you will. Do we see a theme developing? Again, we know the rest of the story, but God's at work. And there's faithful living going on here. Instead of these instances and these circumstances drawing him away, I mean, what would we think to have our brothers sell us? To then have false accusations brought against us and be cast into prison? How many of us would be saying, Why me, Lord? Why have you forsaken me? Say, but that's a natural reaction. Yeah. But we don't see it as being Joseph's reaction. Why isn't it why is it not Joseph's natural reaction? Because Joseph faithfully is serving God. And I think at that young, tender age of being 17, 18, 19 in this time frame, he's mature, if you will, in his faith. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to live for God. No matter where it's at. No matter what the circumstances. He knew God, I believe, he knew God was with him. I mean, who else could prosper his hand but God? And so he lives for him. And so do, as we look at our lives and consider these things, do we recognize the presence of God in our life? John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Christ speaking to his disciples, preparing them for his departure. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, another of the same kind, just like me. I'm your comforter now, Jesus is saying. There's coming another one. He's just like me. He's called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. That he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now we know that the understanding of the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit came and went from people. In the New Testament era, as Christ is telling us here and in chapter 16 of John as well, that there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence. We're going to be his dwelling place. We're going to be his domicile, his house. He's going to take up residence in us and be with us forever. 
we need not wonder in those circumstances, is God with me? But it's not of my choosing. Hope we understand most of our life is not of our choosing. Because it's God's life, not ours. And the sooner we recognize that, the better off we are. But he notes he's dwelling within us. God's here. We find ourselves in that kind of situation. God's there. Paul to the Romans said in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 8, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, joint heirs, are heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We're his. He is with us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. He knows about the things that we are experiencing. He has a purpose and plan through it all. And so faithful living, yes, means recognizing the presence of God in our life. God is here. God is with me. God knows about what I'm going through. And he has a purpose and plan for it. Now may I trust him. He will bring me through. Faithful living means living faithfully even during the bad situations. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph. What we would term bad situations. I mean, I wouldn't exactly consider being sold into slavery a highlight of a life. Falsely accused and cast into prison, a highlight of a life. We consider them bad situations, bad circumstances. But it didn't cause Joseph to turn from God. He faithfully served him, living for him. Doesn't mean that he doesn't, didn't have any doubts. I'm sure they probably crept in. They do all of us, even when we are trusting God and knowing what he's going on, what he's doing. I mean, I know I have in circumstances in my life. I've wondered, God, what are you doing? Why is this unfolding like this? God has a purpose and plan for it. We need to step back and trust him. Okay, Lord, I don't understand why this isn't, this isn't what I thought was going to happen. But God, you've allowed this to happen. You have a purpose, you have a reason, you have a plan. I will trust you. This hasn't taken you by surprise. And you will work things out. I will trust you. I will continue living for you. There's no cause to forsake you. Joseph stayed faithful. During those bad situations, he stayed faithful. Okay. 
In those times, we must remember, I think like Joseph, God is with us. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, the last part of 5. For he hath said, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We often will use the last part of verse 5, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And we stop right there, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not getting after us for stopping. That is a great and precious promise. But it comes with the understanding of verse 6. So that he has said he's not going to leave us nor forsake us, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I can be bold then in the bad situations, if you will, and acknowledge the Lord is my helper. He's here with me in the midst of this situation. And I'm not going to fear what man can do. Because what can man do? As Christ would remind his disciples, don't fear the man that can only kill the body. Don't fear the man that can kill the body. No. Because that's just the shell. That's just a tent. That's a temporary abiding place. Because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. We just exchange one tent for another tent. We find ourselves in God's presence if this body is killed. Again, the older I get, the the more desirable that is sounding to be home with the Lord. But Christ would go on to say, fear him who not only can kill the body, but can destroy the soul, casting it into hellfire. In other words, fear God. Your fellow man can't cast your soul into hell. Satan can't cast your soul into hell. God Almighty can cast your soul into hell. Fear him. That's who we should fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The circumstances we find ourselves in, which may be of man's making... We need not fear because the Lord is our helper. He is here with me. So really, are they bad situations? We can take, get rid of that adjective. It's a situation in life. And God is here with me. And when God's with me, is it a bad situation? 
I mean, do we really want to tell God, yeah, this is a bad situation, but you're with me here? I, I think we would find ourselves kind of, oh, that's not exactly how I would describe it to God. You know, God, you're here with me, so this can't be a bad situation. It's a situation, yes, but you're here with me. Faithful living means maintaining your principles even when inconvenient. Come back to the middle portion of 39. And we have the account of Potiphar. His wife casting eyes on Joseph. Wanting to be unfaithful to her own husband with a slave. We know the story. I'll not go into detail. We know the story. We know the account. But notice the end of verse 9. Joseph's thoughts through all of this. Do you think Joseph could have rationalized something? Sure he could. Potiphar doesn't know. Potiphar's away at work. He's up at Pharaoh's palace. He's going to be gone all day. Potiphar's not going to know about this, Trist. We can get away with this. Notice Joseph's thoughts. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice Joseph's perspective. I can't sin against God. He didn't say Potiphar. Though, humanly speaking, that would be who he's sinning against. Should he have succumbed to the wife, he's breaking a relationship. He's destroying a home that's not his. But he notes properly, I can't sin against God. Because ultimately, any sin that we are doing is a sin against God. He maintained those faithful principles even when it was inconvenient. This puts him in a predicament. Again, we know the rest of the story. This keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. And finally she has him trapped in the house. And he flees for it, leaving his coat, which she then uses as a woman spurned. I'll turn the tables on him. He won't do this with me? Fine. I'll turn the tables on him. Husband! 
that Hebrew that you brought in, he tried to make advances at me. And I said, no. May we realize when sin comes marching in, it's never convenient. Sin never waits for a convenient time. James, in his epistle, notes this in chapter 1. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James uses fishing idea here. Any fisherman who uses a lure knows what James is talking about. You put the bait out there that you want the fish to get. You dangle it out in front of him. You try to attract him. So that he bites. He takes the bait. That's what temptation is doing. It's dangling the carrot in front of you. Ooh, look at this. Look at how nice it is. You know, anybody that makes lures, whether you try to, if you're a fly fisherman and you make your own flies, part of what you're trying to do is to hide something, aren't you? You're trying to hide that hook. Disguise it. So the fish doesn't find out about it until it's too late. That's how James is describing what temptation and sin does. The temptation is the lure, the thing out there that looks so pretty, so nice, so attractive. But it leads to sin. There's a catch to it. And if you bite it, it'll end in death. James will also state in chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to be good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Thankfully, Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. There's a thing we don't often think of. One of the things Satan likes to do is, Oh, nobody has ever faced what you're facing. You are all alone in the world. Nobody knows what you're going through. So don't talk to anybody else about this because they wouldn't know what you're going through. No, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God knows all about it. Men have faced the same temptations that you do. It's nothing unusual. It's nothing new, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old, same old. And beyond that, guess what? God is faithful. He's provided the way of escape. 
He can get you out of it. Trust him. Faithful living means recognizing God is in control. I trust we have seen that, maybe not recognized it, but seen. Has God been in control of Joseph's life through all this? Yes. God has had a purpose and plan. Because God knows what's down the road. When Joseph comes to his brothers there near Dothan, does God know that in several years down the road, there's going to be a seven-year famine? Yes. This ends up being part of God's plan. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. In verse 20, Jacob is dead. We've come to many, many years later. The brothers are fearful now that dad's gone, that Joseph is going to retaliate because of what they did to him those many years ago. He's certainly in a position within Egypt to do something. He's second in command. Could he bring the full force of Egypt's power against his brothers? Oh, sure. He could trump up charges. He already did that once. And so they come to him and say, Joseph, Dad told us you need to be good to us. Joseph, in verse 19, said unto them, Fear not, am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Yes, your human schemes meant it for evil. But Joseph has been recognizing all through these years, God was at work. God took me there. God was with me when I was there with Potiphar's house. God was with me when I was taken out of Potiphar's house, put into prison. God was with me there so that there came a time when Pharaoh had an issue with a dream. And his butler remembered that I interpreted the butler's dream correctly and the baker's dream. And after a couple years, the butler tells Pharaoh, yes, hey, there, there was a guy down in prison when I was tossed there. And he interpreted my dream correctly. The, the baker, his head got taken, but mine, I was restored back into my office he can help you. Go get him. So Joseph is cleaned up. Again, we know the story. He's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him what his dreams are. Here's your dream. God's shown you that there's going to be seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. You would do real well, Pharaoh, if you prepare now, for that seven years of famine. 
Pharaoh says, I think you're the man to do it. You'll be second in command of all Israel, of, of all Egypt. You make it happen. Again, we know the story. In the seven years of famine, after some of them have gone by, Joseph or Jacob says to his brothers, go down to Egypt. They have food down there. And again, we know the story. You meant it for good, or you meant it for evil. God meant it for good because he allowed me to be in a position where I could spare your lives. You didn't have food in the land of Canaan. We had it down here. And God brought you here. He recognized God was in control. We often quote Romans chapter 8, verse 28 at this point. And it is valid, and it is right. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That works for all situations in our lives. God is in control. The events that are taking place have not taken God by surprise. May we trust him. May we live faithfully because he's called upon us as stewards to live faithfully. He's with us in the circumstances. He's with us. Do we recognize that? Or are we practical atheists? And we forget that God's there. May we not. God was with Joseph. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with us. May we trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Joseph. We know it wasn't a perfect life. Though we have no recorded sinful event in Joseph's life, we know that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He did sin. But Father, in the course of the events that we have recorded, we see him faithfully living for you even in circumstances that we would consider hard, we would consider unusual, cruel, mean, vicious. But Father, you were with him. You've promised that you are with us. We who know you know that you have taken up your abode in us. You are with us every moment of every day. You've told us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Father, may we live faithfully for you. Yes, it's easy to do it in the good times. With smooth sailing, pleasant breezes, sunshine. But, Father, there are storms in life. There are temptations that arise. May we faithfully serve you. You will bring us through.
you are there. You know what's going on. May our trust be in you and you alone. Help us, Father, to live out that it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. In the Gospels, you tell us in the parable that those servants were looking and saw and heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we trust that there is coming a day that we will hear that from you when we stand in your presence. Father, that starts today. May we be found faithful. Challenge and stir us to that end. Maybe we've wondered. Father, you are with us. May we stand firm, resting in your care, trusting in your grace and power and mercy and love. Challenge us to that end. Stir our hearts. Encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.